Hey everyone, it's been a moment since we've gotten an episode out, and I have to apologize for that. In between my schedule and some restructuring things that we've had to work on in the podcast, which I will be sharing with you all more in the coming months, um, it's been a moment. So we've we've uh, to, since we got our last episode out, and thankfully we are here with a new episode where I interview our friend Dr. Julia Sadusky, who has been on the podcast a few times about her new book coming out and her last book that came out previously. But before we get into that, I have a fun announcement for you. Um, if you are a side B LGBT or same sex attracted Christian and looking for an opportunity to connect with other similar LGBT, same-sex attracted, side B Christians. Uh, This is for you. There is a side B retreat happening November 10th to November 13th uh, in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. Um, And here's the key. If you are interested in this, you have to register before uh, midnight, we're going to say 1159, on Wednesday, October 18th. That is a day and like two days. I mean, that's tomorrow, the end of tomorrow. So there's not a lot of time. I know that that's a a really quick thing, but there are still spots remaining on this retreat opposed to some other kind of experiences. This is a much more intimate experience and it is only for LGBT side B Christians. Um, Spouses are not Um, This is not for spouses. This is not for friends. This is not for allies. This is specifically for side B people to be nurtured and have community with other side B Christians. So um, if you are interested in this, email us at the podcast and I can get you more information. Um, But want to extend this out to our listeners um, to see if you've never heard about this. Many times it happens through word of mouth. And, um, if you are interested, let me know and I will get you more information. And that is my announcement. And with that, let's head into the episode. Hello, Life on Side B family. Um, we, this episode, it is me and the wonderful Dr. Julia Sadeski. Hey, Julia. Hey, good to see you, Josh. This is like the third time having you on the podcast, I believe. And the first time I get to see you. That's right. It's so fun. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, no one else can see you, but at least I can see you. That's right. Somebody's got to, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It is good to see you. I, um, I have so much enjoyed the times we've gotten to have you on. Um, and talked about mental health and all of these things. And you have a book that came out. When did uh, Gender Identity and Faith come out? Last year? I think it was last year. Yeah. Last year? And you already already have a new book coming out. That's right. Yes. So a new book coming out this November and it's book one of a two book series. So the second book will be out in sometime next year. I am jealous about like how much writing you can get done. (laughs) Yeah, weekends are really helpful for that. <laughs> oh my gosh, you are so much more disciplined than me. Um, and I am jealous, but I'm I'm really excited. I wanted to have you on so we could like talk through these books and mm-hmm. um, they're 
both very different, but really, really important. And, um, and so we're going to dive into those. Um, to start off, uh, we're just going to like go right into it. Um, cause there's, I, y'all, when I was going through this and I was coming up with questions, even just with the second book, which I'll, we'll go into what each book is about and all of that. I had so many questions. I was like, we're not even going to get to all of these. So I'm, we're jumping in so that we can get to as many as we can. Um, the first book, uh, Gender Identity and Faith is the title, correct? And right. you wrote, you and Mark both wrote that together that's you right. and mark your house okay. and i yeah we we wrote that together okay um really as a therapist guide so yeah uh it's a little distinct from emerging gender identities which was for kind of the average layperson, clinician minister pastor um mm-hmm. yeah parent all of that but this book is really targeted at mental health professionals and how do we effectively work with people at the intersection of faith and um exploration of gender so what prompted this book, like specifically gearing towards counselors in that way? Yeah, so we get a lot of questions, both Mark and I, about how we actually do therapy with people. I think mm-hmm. there's a recognition that there's a lot of ways to do harm in therapy mm-hmm. around um LGBT experiences more broadly, and then certainly the experience of transgender people or people with gender dysphoria. And so really the book was just our best effort to tell people some of the landscape of what we do in therapy, but also help clinicians get a crash course in what they really need to know about Um, the research in gender in order to feel more effective. And it was really written not just for faith-based clinicians, but recognizing that all clinicians ought to be competent or at least culturally humble enough to show up in the room with people from conventionally religious backgrounds. So the book is for any clinician trying to work with people with conventionally religious values or families. Yeah. I, I think that's so important. I'm really glad you guys did that because I even know as like a queer person, um, that, I've gone sometimes to counselors and like, let's just say secular counselors where, you know, they put a rainbow on their thing of going like safe place for LGBT people or like working in this space. And then I've gone and had a session with them and then be like, you're actually my first gay client. And I was like, oh, oh, but like, didn't your website say that? Like, I I would assume that that means you've like studied in this area or something and not really actually prepared for LGBT clients. Exactly. I think sometimes, you know, people ask me, do I have a pride flag in my office or do I put, you know, some type of symbol up in order to Mm -hmm. let people know I'm safe? And I actually think of that from a trauma-informed lens that, you know, just like I wouldn't say to a client, I'm trustworthy Mm -hmm. upon meeting them, I wouldn't say I'm safe upon meeting Mm -hmm. them. I am only as safe as you experience me to be. I'm only as trusting and trustworthy as I demonstrate myself to be. So I think some of these symbols, while they can have some value, right, as a signal to people of potential acceptance and support, they do not signify competence in working at the intersection of sexuality, gender, and faith especially. So I, I think just being aware of that is really important for people. Yeah. And actually being able, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to have that and be able to do it. Um, so Leslie, 
Hudson Reynolds, our lovely friend, was actually going to join us in this conversation because I thought that it would be really cool to be able to actually also have them ask questions, especially on this first book. Uh, But unfortunately, due to like a family situation, they were not able to come, but they sent some questions and want to like talk through two of their questions specifically in this that um, and then we're going to move a little bit into the second book. Um, So first of all, um, so I'm kind of try and just read this, but um, uh, from what Leslie sent, but uh, Leslie ex- shared that they were really impacted by um, the case studies at the end of the book, um, which I would love for you to kind of share a little bit more about what that was about. Um, and um, that they were correlating uh, that to, um, to, oh, like even to the people studies that we do at Posture Shift. Um, and how we see people completely change their attitudes towards these young people based on the studies. So like, you know, similar thing. Um, and uh, it's a little, you know, it's a little bit different when you're reading a study and all of those things, but we would love to hear about the feedback um, that you've, or any feedback you've read on or received on the impact of those stories. So maybe first, if you can share a little bit about the case studies in the book, and then also like what kind of feedback have you received on those? Yeah, so there's a, a range of case studies we tried to show people of different ages, um, you know, a person in a, uh, a marriage who was wrestling with gender uh, dysphoria, experiencing that. And so we tried to show different outcomes, but also different starting points, you know, stories of families working through in therapy, um, a young person's, you know, identification as trans or non-binary. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for that is to really illustrate, again, for clinicians, mm-hmm. where do we actually go with people? And and it is so helpful. I mean, even my clients, when they meet with me, will say, okay, but like, what actually happens to your clients? How does this go? <laughs> right? They want to yeah. know, like, um, almost, yeah, where people end up in the arc of therapy. And so part of that is pulling back the veil and helping people see how does this approach actually help people? Um and to what extent are there still threads that are unfinished or unfigured yeah. out at the end of therapy? And so to Leslie's question, it's a great one. You know, what's the impact of those case studies? I think for clinicians who are newer in the space, it's really helpful just to hear a range of outcomes and to start to put themselves in the room and think, mm-hmm. okay, how would I show up for a client? And it can almost help not have what you had, which is the first time they're sitting across from somebody, it's live. And they say, oh, I've never yeah. worked with anybody who you know, <laughs> is queer before. Uh, it, it's to help buffer because everybody will have their first client of mm-hmm. a certain demographic yeah. at some point. And so to help with that thought experiment and to really be more effective and to learn from what we've done. But I also really appreciate what Leslie's saying about really getting to walk with somebody in a more maybe removed way of it's like reading a study and learning about that process and what the findings are. It's okay. So this is, this gives me a little bit of a snapshot into one person's story. And and most Mm -hmm. of our case studies anyway, are a combination of different stories. We don't just photocopy one person's story. (laughs) We want to be respectful of that. Um, But to really, yeah, pull for a conglomerate of the different experiences of people exploring gender and faith. And we have gotten feedback that that case study piece is really helpful towards the end of just training, but also 
really embodying the experience of trans and non-binary people in a way that is harder to access if you live in a community that is a bit more siloed. And, and I think yeah. it helps people feel more confidence to reach out. Um, or if they have a, an experience of identifying as trans, I think to see themselves in somebody else's story as well. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really important because many times in these kinds of conversations, we can talk in a very theoretical way. Like one of the questions, probably my next question will be, you know, what are like, if you had to pick three things that are really important for a counselor, you know, to, you know, with being equipped in order to work with, um, especially within the gender conversation. But like, I I think that something impactful of case studies is it shows you the personalized reality of what it looks like to go, especially when you can have seen multiple case studies of like, look, each of these are very different, but like you can see how nuanced the, like all of these principles still apply, but actually getting to see it lived out. Like when, when training, like in my work of training churches, like you can tell people love people, but then when you can actually give them a scenario, like, Hey, Mm -hmm. here is the actual case. And you're probably going to run into a case like this. Now, how are you going to deal with it? That's right. It becomes very practical right Mm away. Um, so exactly. And it's, yeah, I'll go ahead. It shows it's not a manual, right? It's, it's not, you can't carbon copy one thing on another. And, um, Mm -hmm. I think case studies nuance it a bit more, like you said. Yeah. So going away from case studies and into these broader principles, <laughs> exactly what I was yeah. saying before, but like, what, what are some of the principles that you have found, like, when you're talking with um, counselors, therapists, of being like, here are some of the broader things when working that you really need to have in mind or, or all of that. I think it's intriguing to know this, especially as a queer person going into therapy. And I, I'm like, I, I wanted us to talk about this both because we have a growing number of cisgender straight um, people. And we also have many counselors that listen to, but I also think it's interesting for our like queer listeners to hear like, what, what does that look like for therapy? Yeah. I think for clinicians, a lot of times we can feel pressure to put our best foot forward in therapy and kind of talk ourselves up as far as our Mm. competence or effectiveness. And the upside of that therapist being honest with you was that you then knew (laughs) where they were coming from and how little experience they had. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, the first principle I think of is actually being honest about what you know and don't know as a Mm -hmm. clinician Mm -hmm. and also being honest about what we as a field know and don't know in this space. I find myself all the time disappointing families because they want me to give them the blueprint and they want me to give them the 10 step process, right, to come to some type of particular outcome. And it's really hard to be as honest as uh, is honest about the research and about what we know and what we don't know in this space. And so clinicians, yeah, resisting the urge to mispresent uh, a level of confidence that the field doesn't have in our research and we don't reasonably have as clinicians. And I think the upside of that is it really helps families know that if they're feeling like this is really complicated, they're right. Mm-hmm. And I, I want people to appreciate the complexity of the experiences of people exploring gender, but also the complexity of the intersection of those experiences with Christian faith and the many different pathways people may yeah. take over the course of therapy. Um, I think another another principle is remembering that you are a therapist and you address mental health concerns. And sometimes in this space, therapists can get so, I think, 
anxious about mm. demonstrating competence around gender that they forget there's a whole person across from them yeah. who actually may have had a really hard day at work yesterday and might want to talk about that in therapy mm. and not mm. want to, you know, last week we were on this topic and we have to go back to that because chapter two of the book said you talk about this <laughs> next, right? I mean, <laughs> being able to have the freedom to be a clinician and if you see things coming up in therapy, uh, that could be complicating just a person's ability to really sit with themselves, you know, teaching skills, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, not withholding those because somebody came to you to talk about gender. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're, mm -hmm. You know, just really humanizing people. I think sometimes um, my clients have gone to clinicians and felt really reduced to their mm -hmm. uh, gender identity um, mm -hmm. as if that's the things to focus on all the time and it can be pretty yeah. reductive. Um, and then I guess a third principle would be if you're working with youth and young adults um, from conventionally religious backgrounds to ask about their experience of the church, to ask about their experience of faith. Some clinicians feel really hesitant to do that because they don't want to have that be misconstrued in some type of harmful way. But, I, you know, you know this, Josh, and probably yeah. if nobody asks about the important facets of your identity, including your spiritual identity, it says something to you and it can feel mm -hmm. almost like it's your job to take care of the clinician and avoid those conversations. So I don't expect my clients to share with me about their faith journey, um, but I do ask them if they'd like to share that with me. And, yeah. and that would be really important for this work to initiate those conversations early in therapy and assume there's a story there that that person has to tell that may really inform the degree to which their faith feels accessible to them right now as a strength or as more of a um, point of great pain. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely, I mean, there's so much there. First of all, going back to your first point, I love what you're saying about being honest about what you know or don't know. Because yeah, you're right. Like when that therapist told me that, I'm like, oh, okay, I now get to make the decision if this is the right place for me. Like, right. am I willing to walk alongside for, to also allow, help him understand what needs to be understood for me? Or do I need to find someone who's kind of already in that space of whatever, you know, going on? Um, so I, I love that. In caring for people, there can always be the sense of, I need to have all of the answers. Um, but being able to go, hey, no, you know, like I've had to accept when going into therapy, especially in this intersection of faith and and sexuality and especially the nuanced ways that I live that out, um, it's going to be very hard for me to find a counselor that understands all of those facets, has experience in all of those facets. And sometimes it's been a situation of going, what is the most important thing and what area am I willing to make space for them um, mm -hmm. in it? So like I've talked before on the podcast of how um, uh, at a point when I was like processing conversion therapy and the trauma around that, it was like, no, I need someone who understands that even if they don't completely understand my faith or that kind of thing. I need someone who is there or like with faith, even if they don't understand my sexuality. Uh, and those are just the informed things we have to like engage with both as counsel like counselors and then also as clients, like looking for a counselor. That's exactly right. That's a great point. I'm glad you yeah. said that. Yeah. Um, did uh, two more questions on this book before we go is first of all, um, 
a lot of this, was this really built on your and Mark's uh, experience or did you guys like consult with other, um, other clinicians? Yes, we did um, integrate a good bit of his, you know, individual work with clients, my clinical work. And then we had a lot of helpful reviewers through the process. So Mm -hmm. we both separately run consult groups with clinicians who staff cases um, tied to queer experiences. Um, So we brought in a couple of those voices and we're grateful to get their feedback, especially when it came to specific exercises or uh, worksheets, language, ways that they've found it helpful to communicate to a wide swath of people. And so um, that was really helpful. And then we also brought in some specialists in the area of gender that were not people of faith because we really Mm. felt like to create a book that was going to be able to reach a broad group of clinicians, we wanted to make sure, number one, we were honoring that we have biases in this space as well. And so we needed clinicians to check us if we were misrepresenting research or we hadn't read a counter article to one journal Mm -hmm. article. And so we got some really helpful feedback from two psychologists in particular. And you can see those all throughout the book in the footnotes. And, you know, to be honest in this space, uh, and you know this, I'm sure it's, um, a lot of people really get panicked when they see names of people who might disagree with them from a faith perspective. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so we got some we got some pushback on the fact that we brought in uh, endorsers and and uh, mm. reviewers who would be challenging us. And I, I think of that as good academia. We didn't rewrite yeah. the book based on everything somebody says, but we do want to be as thoughtful and as um, balanced as possible and acknowledge the areas that we bring through our own perspectives into the writing that we do. So just, yeah, well, a little bit of both, I would say. And, and it's so, yeah, people get very nervous in those kinds of spaces and it's like, Hey, we can actually have review from people that might, I don't know, disagree or like, or have differing views, but then that allows you, as you said, I just feel like that within academia that allows a much more solidified foundation to the research. Um, What on a more personal side, like, you know, a lot of, I mean, what percentage of your uh, clinical work would you say is within the gender conversation? I guess, first of all, is it? Yeah, I would say maybe 30, 40%. Oh, okay. I thought, but Mm -hmm. I thought it was higher than that. No, but, um, I mean, just for gender. Like if you do LGBT, it's probably 60%. Got and it, then got the it. rest is yeah. other things. Yeah. Um, what, like, obviously, though, you you speak very well into these, into these spaces. Would love to hear a little bit more of, like, what has led you, like, or brought, built that passion in you for this conversation. Yes. Um, so... The first piece of it is really the thread of why I wanted to do research with Mark on sexual orientation. And um, I was at a a conservative Catholic college in Florida for undergrad and was studying um, human sexuality and Mm -hmm. uh, Christian teaching on sexuality. And at the same time, people I loved in my life, um, friends, family, started sharing with me that they experienced same-sex attraction, identified as gay. And... I was so struck by the questions being asked that I had never had to ask through puberty and beyond. And I just remember at the time having hints and guesses of what I thought (laughs) about um, 
this terrain and and I did not know and I felt pretty humbled and just had a lot of work to do to learn. Um, people's questions became my questions and I was really struck by the fact that I'd had the privilege of not having to ask them. And the stakes are pretty high when you're 14 and, you know, you're wondering, mm -hmm. is it a sin to identify as gay? I mean, those are pretty high stakes. So yeah. am I going to hell if my attractions don't change? And so that was really mm -hmm. the start of my journey was just got it, you know, opened my heart to the experience of people I already loved. And um, yeah, I wasn't an obvious person to go to. So I was grateful that they yeah, let me show up for them in the ways that I could at the time. But I wanted yeah. to do better. And so I, I started working with Mark at Region and he came out with understanding gender dysphoria my first year and mm -hmm. he started supervising me my second year. So pretty soon people wanted to be seen by the person being supervised by him in the gender conversation. And I was doing youth ministry and getting questions around gender. And I was saying at the time in talks, I don't know enough about gender to really weigh in on this <laughs> yet. And so what a difference, you know, years make. But uh, I, I think my heart got expanded for the experience of trans people and um, people, especially young kiddos, uh, wrestling with gender dysphoria and I saw such a deficit in how we in our faith communities respond. And I think I've continued to see those deficiencies grow in some ways and also become less in other areas. And so it just became a real passion of mine to say that mm. um, God loves me and he loves you and he loves queer people. And how does the church more effectively respond? And then in response to all the controversy and harm around conversion approaches, I think as a clinician wanting to offer a different and sustainable approach to people that doesn't do harm and also doesn't make people pick between their uh, experience and their values mm -hmm. unless they choose to freely, yeah. <laughs> but not to do that as a forced choice. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I, I think the work that, that you've been doing, Mark's been doing, so many counselors have been doing is very healing, even as a person like myself, who's had very negative experiences within therapy. And it's very healing to see, um, especially clinicians of faith kind of really working on how do we engage this. And I'm, I just thank you for sharing, first of all. And um, I always think it's really impactful when, um, when, you know, for many people, when you're not queer yourself, many times the the initial instigator of getting into this conversation is family or friends, or you know, it becomes re it becomes more than just a topic; it becomes people. Um, but the fact of not only just having that experience, but then actually dedicating of I want to do more, I want to do better. Like not everyone does that. You know, I even know from my own family, like not everyone does that. Like you know, you try to love, but so I just think the effort that you've decided you've and the passion that you've had to I want to do better in this I think that's really really awesome yeah thanks Josh yeah so moving into your next book um can you tell us a little bit about this upcoming book like what led you to write it and mm -hmm. and you're writing this like you're the sole author of this one correct that's right yeah yes. it's the first time I took that on myself and ah. Yes. On the one hand, you can be more efficient. On the other hand, it helps to have a co-author. So. Yes. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. So it's a two book series, uh, as I mentioned, called Start Talking. Well, the first book is Start Talking to Your Kids About Sex, a practical guide for Catholics. And the second book is Talking with Your Teens About Sex, mm. a practical guide for Catholics. And um, 
if you're not Catholic, don't get freaked out. It's okay. Uh, you can still read the book. It was written. Greg Coles helped me uh, write that book in a way that would be very ecumenical. And uh, uh, there will be areas where it's speaking out of uh, specific Catholic thought on something like, mm -hmm. let's say, masturbation or pornography. Yeah. And maybe there may be facets of that that don't always apply to all denominations. But um I tell you in the book when that's happening and when it's not. And so mm -hmm. hopefully that will help people um, use a lot of the content regardless of denomination. But yeah, it's a two book series, the first book for parents of kids zero to 10. Um, and then the second for parents of teens, 10 to 18. Um, and all the common questions that I was getting asked a lot about how do you yeah, teach kids boundaries. How do you help prevent sexual abuse uh, to the degree that we can? How do we uh, help kids know not just what not to do with their bodies, but what to do with their bodies and um, to understand attraction, uh, technology use, and um, even teaching basic principles like how to talk about genitalia with your kids, uh, which we know to be a common preventative measure against sexual abuse in childhood. So um, why did I write it? Honestly, I kept getting calls from my best friends uh, who are married, and they were asking me all these questions about my three-year-old did this, my three-year-old asked about this, um, my five-year-old, this happened at a sleepover, right? And and so that was part of it, was frankly just my friends were asking me questions. I was giving them answers, and they kept saying, I wish there was a book about this. I wish there was an updated book about this. And you have no idea so a lot how of many writers times I get that question. Right? So, so it was, how do we make a book about this was really mm -hmm. that piece of it. But I also do work with a lot of people who have survived, um, yeah, traumatic experiences in childhood. And, you know, you hear the same stories or similar themes enough times to know there is more we could be doing to protect our yeah. children and to protect our teens and to help them when unwanted sexual experiences do happen, um, to not internalize that. And we as Christians, I think we have a duty to uh, be very proactive in this space. And I didn't see us doing that. And I actually saw a lot of the most harm as far as in reinforcing sexual shame coming down through mm -hmm. our faith communities. And so I thought, why not help parents be better equipped? Because most parents don't have time on weekends to sit and write this stuff out and research it, but yeah. I did. And so i that, that's where it came from for me. I honestly, and I, yeah, I 100% agree. This, this is a question I get a lot and people asking, is there a resource? And my constant thing is not really to the degree that there needs to be. And so- right. That's why I'm, and especially in this moment, like we're not going to engage in this in a political way, but just the the pol the political culture war that's currently happening around kids and sex sexual education and all of these different kinds of areas, and how do you um, how do we engage in this, both as a society, as individuals, especially when you have public school systems and all of these kinds of things that play a role in in the education of our kids. I, I guess one, so a few questions around this that I would just love to get your perspective on um, is, you know, I, I feel like when I was growing up, the whole thing was like a sex talk. I don't know. You had this concept of like a singular conversation that happened right. like early puberty and your parents told you, you know, all of the details. Um, like, 
what are, what are your thoughts on it? First of all, it's funny how much that that was the thing. And my parents never had the conversation with me. I think just when they realized that I was gay, they were like, we don't even know what to say. So then like, okay, <laughs> there's nothing. Um, so as much as that was always the big thing, I never got the sex talk. But, um, but like, what are your thoughts on that approach? Or do you think there's a better way? Like what, um, not for you to give away your whole, like main things of your book, but I know that that's a main crux area sometimes within this part. Right. So that's why, you know, it might shock people initially who were raised in that approach to hear me say, oh, the first book is zero to 10. Yeah. And it's right? start talking to your kids about sex. Right. And, and what are we talking about? Well, we're not talking about sexual intercourse with a mm. five-year-old, but we are saying, you know, that's your vagina or that's yeah. your penis. I mean, we are, we are using that language. Um, why? Number one, I, like I mentioned, prevent uh, abuse when possible. Number two, if something does happen for a kid to have language to talk yes. about their, their body, um, to reduce shame about the body, which you start to see as kids get a little older, maybe five to seven, they start to notice themselves in a room and they maybe start to want to cover up in the bathroom and not be you know, seen in the shower. And, and so even teaching and helping a kiddo understand their changing body, um, you know, young boys start to have erections even in utero. And we don't always realize that. So they are developing sexual beings. Um, and so to be able to honor that in a gradual way is a really different approach to the traditional sex talk. So the benefit of the traditional sex talk is you only have to do it once. And so if parents are feeling anxious and if they didn't have good models, they can kind of one and done, get it out of the way, show the diagrams. Um, but to be honest with you, Josh, what I see happening now is technology, peers, and um, primarily social media are sex education to kids. Yeah. And if they have access to technology at any level, they're going to see a lot before you are, you know, talking with them about sex at puberty. And mm -hmm. to know what sexual intercourse is not sufficient to help a person have healthy sexual development. And I think that's where the books come in is saying, if we want healthy, mature, integrated sexual adults who are able to practice stewardship of their sexuality, how do we help equip them for that? And mm -hmm. I can assure you that all the people I talked to who got one really great sex talk <laughs> did not have what they needed. They, yeah. they looked elsewhere and parents get to help be the primary educator of their kids. And, and I want to support parents in that. And, and I think if all we do up is throw up our hands at culture and say, you can't teach my kids, mm -hmm. then who's going to fill the gap? And, and I think what I saw happening was it was technology, social media, and friends. And that gives all kinds of messaging to kids. And so um, it's a way maybe for Christians to clap back in a, in a way that's proactive to culture, but also to actually have a place at the table with forming our children. Yeah, that's always been a big thing for me in these conversations about like who I don't want teaching, you know, teaching my kids about this. And I'm like, okay, but who's going to, I'm not saying that then that person yes. should, we actually agree they shouldn't. Yeah. But my right. thing is, is we're just simply focusing on who shouldn't. And so I always engage with this so much on, um, seeing, I see it like, and I, again, like you, I'm like, I'm not a parent, but I can obviously see I'm surrounded by enough children that many times 
the lack of conversation that's happening. And I love that you talk about like, there's already sexual development happening way before puberty, like with bodies and being able to have actual, like if a parent has a hard time saying the actual word penis or vagina, how much of that is with your own shame in this conversation that then it's, you kind of have to engage with that in order so you can not pass that on to your child. But it's hard. That's, to with it. that's exactly right. That And the first chapter of the first book is about that, like um, mm-hmm. talking about the barriers. You as a parent probably want to form your kids in a healthy way. What is getting in the way? When you imagine, right, talking about sexuality in gradual ways, what barriers come up, what fears, what memories, right? And being able to acknowledge there's so many things that get in the way of well-intentioned parents doing what they want to do. And then in the second book with teens, it's helping parents engage in their sexual story and look at what mm-hmm. are the stories stories that got told about sexuality to me and how might I pass that on when I don't want to and infuse that, right, in the ways I teach and communicate in my tone about sexual um, matters with my kids and just really raising that awareness because to your point, you know, well-meaning parents have all kinds of things in their own lives that make it hard, including lack of modeling, which is what the book's really trying to offer. Yeah. And it's, it's such like a deficit that happens in, uh, it's one of the biggest things for, how do you, how do you, what have you found most helpful to engage with parents on this topic? Bo- both, especially when you're, when I feel like we're, we're amidst generations. I, I can't really say that it's much dif- different than the past, but at least the current generations, there's so much sexual shame, I would say, especially within Christian communities and, and all of these things. But then, um, also within divisiveness of the culture of the moment you talk about sex and kids, it just turns political. And you're like, I just want you to help you. Like how, what have you found best to engage with parent help engage with parents? Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of how we talk about, you know, recommending therapy to somebody else. It's yeah. like the best approach is talking about and sharing just really un, almost unrequested, like what's been so helpful about it for you. So mm as that applies to this, I think, you know, one of the best things that I've seen in in my own communication with friends and family members about these conversations as a single person is I get to talk about my own sexual shame. I get mm. to share about the ways yeah. shame has shown up in my life, uh, the challenges, the barriers that brings up for me in, in um, yeah, honoring my sexuality in a sustainable way. And So starting from that first person perspective of here's what I'm learning, right? And here's what I wish I had in my family. Mm -hmm. Here's what would have helped me, you know, for for you, Josh, like when I started to, you know, notice these attractions, like here's what would have helped me, right? Here's what I would have needed five years prior to really equip me to know my parents were the first people I wanted to talk to about this And, and being able to really map a little bit more of your own story of of both shame and and uh, redemption, right? In our in our lives, as we uh, yeah become more holistic humans, and so I think that's one piece. I think also the number one thing I talk with families about is that if you don't, someone will. Mm, yes, and it's highly likely somebody already has, mm-hmm. and I want you to be equipped to be the number one person. Because you get to be the one through whom they discern everything else 
And that would be ideal, right? And so just being able to, number one, like illustrate the gap, right? Um, and not in a debate, but just genuinely stating like somebody's going to do it and, and mm. hi, why not you, right? Yeah. And then also being able to share from your own experience about what would have been helpful and what would have been less helpful um, along the way. That's so powerful because again, kind of going back to the thing of like, let's just not focus on who shouldn't be teaching your kids is um, this is exactly as you said, someone will talk to them about this and it should be you as a parent. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's what we want to encourage. We want to encourage the safety for kids Mm -hmm. to talk to their parents and um, closing off about the conversations at making those conversations simply about, as you said, like what not to do, but like also being able to show the positivity of your body and like, you know, God created your body. Like this is a good thing or else he wouldn't have made you a physical being. Um, But being able to have those conversations, because yeah, someone will talk to your kids. It's not just going to be you. And like on top of it, it, you have to learn, help them how to engage in when faced with hearing from other people and maybe learning about something that goes kind of contrary to the way that you've engaged with them, like helping them get the skills in how to engage with those perspectives in a way to be able to, uh, you know, process that and process the information because they will get the information. (laughs) It will come. Right. Right. And and you want to know, you know, have a kid know who to talk to, right? And a lot of times what I'm seeing and hearing um, is parents will make almost off-the-cuff comments, right, where they'll engage mm-hmm. with a, um, a matter that relates to human sexuality, something they see on the news, something yeah. that pops up on a commercial, right, and make an off-the-cuff comment. And parents don't realize that that kid is tucking that emotional expression of the parent away and saying, oh, my parent just got really mad in relation to that topic. So I can't bring that to them. So when I hear in school X, Y, or Z, no, I don't want to make my parents mad or I don't want to get a lecture or I don't, Mm -hmm. right? I don't want my friend to be, uh, have their eyes rolled at, right? And being able to know as parents that your kids are watching and they're they're Mm -hmm. trying to see how you relate and So being able to communicate a proactive calmness and readiness and initiative so that when your kid says, you know, oh, I've never thought about that. It's like, okay, well, you will at some point. And when you do, would love to hear what you're thinking about that. And I may circle back, you know, in a few months just to check in and see if anything's butting up related to pornography. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. being able to initiate that. And mm-hmm. it's it's these brief little snippets. It's not these long conversations um, that will really help parents and, and people who are not parents. Right. You and I yeah. who are love kids in our lives and want to show up for them, being able to model a, a way of gradually and casually talking about this is really, really helpful. Yeah, because I think also when you have that openness it might not even always have to be you initiating it. Cause if they, if kids feel the openness to talk about it, they will talk about it. (laughs) Kids are some of the most honest people and are the most honest people in the world. And as long as you give them the safety to do it, they will Mm -hmm. share exactly what they were approached with. 
Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And you can coach them too with that, right? As far as mm-hmm. some parents worry, well, what if we're at church and my kid screams penis? It's like, well, they probably will at some yeah. point because if one, if you have more than one, one might at some point. <laughs> and so you, how do you respond to that? There's coaching on that. And also how do you talk with your kids when you have these conversations about the nature of privacy, right? And you get to teach that principle that, you know, just I get to teach you about this and your friends get to learn from their parents. And so these are not things we talk about with our friends. And if your friends start bringing up X, Y, or Z, you can tell them, oh, that's something I talk about with my family. I don't, I don't tend to talk about that with friends, you know, if you're five. And so teaching them that element of privacy, and it's not because this is bad, it's because it's so important um, that we want to honor sacred spaces to be able to dig into these matters a little bit more deeply. Yeah, it's been interesting for me, the more like, even in spiritual care, I've actually gotten to do a little bit more work, not just with LGBT people, but with straight people in their sexual stories and faith. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most intriguing things that I found is I always assumed that I just didn't really get much of a sex education because of being gay. And um, realizing that most people, especially if you grew up in the church, got nothing. Like straight, yes. gay anywhere in there there just wasn't that there wasn't that and so kind of going I guess this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about like so much of what we lacked or what we didn't have in our stories then ends up you know informing um the way we engage with our kids um it's like wow we many times as a generation um were not really like we learned from culture we didn't learn from our parents we didn't learn from home um, beyond maybe a one, one sex talk, which normally happened after we already understood everything about as it, as it happened. Um, right. and I always joke around that my biggest, my biggest uh, informer of sexual education was golden girls growing up (laughs) because, you know, things would be said and you're a child and you're like, Oh, and like you said, you store these things in your memory and then you store how they're responded to by, you know, Mm -hmm. by how, if the TV gets turned off without, a comment being made about what what it is that happened or um, all of these kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I love that your two books kind of cover two different age, age ranges. And I know that a big point in this conversation around kids and sexual education is the point of age appropriateness. Um, you know, many people can often disagree on what is age appropriate. And there's many factors that play into that like I don't know I would love to hear like yeah how did you how did you discern what to put in the first book versus the second book and those kinds of things right so I would say first off yes just the challenge of knowing uh, when to talk about what is is something that I was struck as I did my research that there's a lot of things we don't know as a field about when are most or least effective times for different topics um so I really look developmentally at like what, how are kids learning at young ages? And, you know, young kids learn in a sensory way and they learn mm-hmm. through touch and, and sight. And so this is why they might engage in exploratory play and touch their mm-hmm. genitals at a certain age. So I, I was able to map a little bit more, okay, developmentally, they're doing this around this, you know, three to five yeah. age range. 
well, wouldn't it be great if parents, when they intervene around like, oh, we actually um, want to keep that area clean so we don't touch it. And if we touch it, we go wash our hands, right? You're teaching mm -hmm. those things at an age when you're starting to see those experiences pop up in kids and sleepovers was another one that had a kind of natural age yeah. that kids start to sleep over. And so questions for parents of how do we do that overnight camps as they get to be eight or nine or 10, maybe they start to want to go to a sleepaway camp for Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or something. Yeah. And so just starting to think through developmentally when the parents are going to be faced with an intervention moment and, and what would they need before that. And then I did... Um, I mean, I think with the second book, it's a little bit more obvious, right? Because mm -hmm. we're talking about intercourse, we're talking about attraction, which is something mm -hmm. a lot of parents forget to talk about. They just move to sexual behavior and they don't really ever talk with 10 year olds about, hey, what are you noticing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's like one thing to say, yeah, we're teaching you to refrain from sexual behavior outside of, uh, you know, marriage, let's say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing to say, oh my gosh, but this really strong feeling is happening and I don't know what it is and I don't know why that feels good and that, right? I mean, all of these things that teens are starting to figure out, um, coaching on that, pornography, you know, masturbation, all of those pieces and certainly unwanted sexual experiences I, I put in both books. So some of it's repetitive. Um, some of it, when I see everybody disagreeing on when we talk about what, I say, we really don't know, but here's mm -hmm. the range that people tend to start talking about this. And then also just naming for parents that if you have a 10-year-old who is not exposed to social media really at all, these conversations are going to be really different with that 10-year-old um, oh, yeah. as far as even how you describe right uh, pornography to a 10-year-old mm -hmm. for whom they're not going to have exposure anytime soon versus one who may. Um, just being really thoughtful and individualized with your kiddo about that. Um, especially when it comes to uh, things like developmental disabilities or um, neurodivergent experiences, that this is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And I guess in the book, I just yeah. try to be honest about, again, what we know and what we don't know with that. Yeah. Oh, no, I love what you shared about the attraction piece, because that's so true. Like, I don't know if it's just, especially if you have straight parents, you've never really mm -hmm. engaged with the nuance of attraction. So. Yes you're just like, oh, there's just attraction and this is how it is for everyone. So we don't need to cover that. Um, exactly. But it's, it's kind of like the, um, the whole experience of second adolescence for, for queer people and how like many times if you, if you didn't get the ex chance to really explore in that way, you find yourself kind of re-entering teenage years all over again. And I always say the dangerousness of, of second adolescence is that you don't have a parent over there telling you you can't move away move across the country for a boy you just met like last week. Yes. Um, so now you actually have to be an adult to your teenage self that is coming yeah. out in this moment. But like being able to like create the space of talking about those feelings of like, yeah, here's a boy. And if I could, I would move across the country to be with him in this moment. And like having the space to talk about that with your kid, like totally understand. We're not doing that, but totally understand. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. That coaching. And I think I, you know, 
Mark Yarhouse and his work, and certainly in the research I've followed through that institute, um, you know, we always are talking about milestone events, especially for queer people. And what are the milestones that you're hitting and who's there with you to go through that process? And so even in the first book and then in the second book, I tried to write, you know, within my chapters, like, let's talk about how parents become a resource to their queer teen. Because not if, if you don't have a queer teen, you will at least have a, a teen who has queer friends. <laughs> and yep. if you do happen to have and you can't identify ahead of time, oh, there's going to be, you know, that that, cl- that child is going to be gay and that child's not going to mm-hmm. be gay, right? Uh, it's no, like, let's talk with all our children about yes. attraction, about orientation, about labels as they get a little mm-hmm. bit older and start to hear those. And um to be able to shape those conversations and create space for those conversations in the home. I think we would, I would love to see the data change in 20 years where in Christian families, parents are among the first to know about Mm. a person's sexual orientation. Yes. And the parents know exactly what to say and exactly what not to say in those moments with greater confidence and um, again, Greg Coles helped me in the book write for everybody and then say, but like, let's assume some of your kids will be queer. And then how are you showing up for them when they're three, right? That when they're 10, you're the one they want to talk to. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because there's there's a thing of numbers. Once you have a certain amount of children, I'm just saying, like, this yes. is what I go over with people. I'm like, once <laughs> Once there are a certain amount of children... It's just a numbers game that one of them will end up being LGBT. <laughs> um, That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. My my last question in this is um, comes from actually just my own experience of myself of as an uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it can often be hard when people who are important to you have taken a bit more of an avoidant approach, you know, to this conversation. Yeah. Um, of talking with their kids about sex and and all of that. But how do you feel other parent, adults besides parents um, can be the most supportive of kids and parents in, in these types of conversations without overstepping parents? Because I know that's always been a hard part for me is like, oh, I see missing pieces happening here. And I would love to be of help. But I also don't want to overstep parents by having conversations that like you don't apparently want to have with your kids, but they definitely need. Um, I don't know what, how, what thoughts do you have there? Yeah. So I think the first thing is thinking like I have three nieces, for instance, and Mm -hmm. when they're a little bit younger, I go over to their house and it would be very common for a parent to say like, hug your aunt or something like that. Right. Or she's leaving, say goodbye. And so some parents don't know right? That actually forcing your kids to hug somebody because it's polite is a a really unhelpful message to teach them Mm -hmm. about embodiment and about boundaries. And so something that I like to do as a single person with my married friends, kiddos, is I say, oh, actually, you know, you can say goodbye to me a lot of ways. I like high fives. I like waves. I like smiles. I, yeah. I And if you want to give me a hug, you're welcome to. So being able to teach that in just a little snippet, right? That And in real warm and casual. So the parents are seeing, I don't have any expectation yeah. of a specific type of behavioral expression from their kid. Um, 
Another one is even when I'm holding a child or, um, you know, I might ask the parent, is it okay? Or I ask the kid, is it okay if I pick you up? Do you want to be held? Yeah. Do you want to be put down? Um, modeling those types of things, I think, are a helpful shift in our standard for what we ought to expect from people outside of the family. Um, and then certainly, you know, as kids get older, if I'm, you know, a family member or a close mentor to somebody, I'm going to get questions. They're going to say things to me. It's very likely. And so I tend to go to the parents ahead of time and say, how do you want me to handle, right? When questions come to me, what would be helpful? And so then you're kind of coming under the mission of the family yeah. um, and really prompting what they maybe have never thought of before, which is how do we want you to support us? And yeah. um so I like to ask my friends those questions. How do you think about teaching your kids about sexuality? What are some mm -hmm. of the the rules, the family rules that you want me to follow if I'm taking your kids out to lunch or just yeah. beginning to really pull those threads? And I think the book, you know, certainly as a lay person, it was really a single person. It was helpful for me to learn some of these pieces and think them through. How do I want to be an adult in the world for these kids? Mm -hmm. And then when... The last thing I'll say is when crises arise, as they do in families, um, communicating a desire to be present as a sounding board, because mm -hmm. when things come up, parents so benefit from having other adults who they can just, hey, this thing happened. I don't know what to do. What do other people do? And I think, you know, again, we can only be so proactive, but then things come up and then being yeah. able to say, oh, well, I read this book and this is what it said. And, and, and you know, helping people know where to go is really helpful when things arise that people don't know how to handle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so wise. Cause I, I, I know that that's been a struggle for me, you know, in, as a, as an uncle, especially the gay uncle, the gunkle of the family mm -hmm. and like, how do I engage in these yes. conversations in a way that's respectful, even when my, you know, my siblings, for instance, and I might have differing views on yeah. when these conversations happen or if these conversations happen. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of to your point about engaging with the parents on it, a big point that I've, I, I've tried to communicate is, and, and I think it's just parents many times feel like the world is against them. I, I just, this is the sense I many times feel is like, I'm trying to raise this child and it feels like all of the forces in the universe are just working in completely different directions in all these different ways. And so being able to try as much as possible to come around a parent and go, I'm actually for you. Even when we disagree, like I want yeah. your kids to have a good relationship with you and I want your kids mm -hmm. to be healthy, integrated human beings that love Jesus. Like we have the same goal here mm -hmm. and trying yes. to prove that in the way I engage with their kids, even when it's like, yes, we have disagreements. Yes, we might, you know, like not completely agree on how to go about this. Our goal is the same in this, um, not right. trying to undermine your parenting. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's really uh, such a key point there. I'm so excited. I'm reading this book, y'all. I I already recommend your gender identity and faith book all the time. Watch. I'm going to be giving this one out like candy. <laughs> it's a good Christmas gift, Josh. There you know, we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost getting there to Christmas time. I'll buy, buy a bunch of them. So thank you so much, Julia. That's great. Really it's on my mind. I'm like, oh, right. that's almost here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when does the book come out? Part one? 
So part one comes out November 10th, 2023, and then we don't have a set date for the second, but it'll be sometime mid-year next year, I would guess. All right. Yeah, we'll be looking for it. Gender Identity and Faith is already out. And then this other book is coming out. If you are a parent yourself, if you just want to know more about this, maybe looking to be a parent or just wanting to know more about how to engage with kids. I, I I just think it's such a key part of life and all of it. So thank you so much, Julia. So glad to have you back on Life on Side B. Yeah, thanks, Josh. It's so good to be with you as always. And I'll look forward to the next time. Yes. All right, everyone. You have a good day and we will talk to you later. Bye, everyone.